Hello, I'm uh, Dr. Carmen Pugliafito, and I'm here this afternoon with uh, Charlie Wyckoff and Dr. Phil Rosenfeld. Dr. Rosenfeld has agreed to join us today to talk about the future of macular degeneration. Phil is a professor of ophthalmology at the Baskin Palmer Eye Institute in Miami and is well known as a global innovator in the field of retinal uh, innovation uh, and technology. Two of his great accomplishments were, of course, the introduction of bevacizumab as a therapeutic agent and something that not everybody remembers, but Phil was the person who demonstrated that OCT was the way to do clinical decision-making in anti-VEGF therapy, a very, very important topic. So Phil, welcome to Retina Synthesis. Thank you, Carmen. Charlie, it's a pleasure to be here. I do remember those early years when we introduced OCT. Boy, did we meet a lot of resistance. I remember there was an academy meeting where I tried to convince people that if you see a few bubbles and a little fluid, if you watch it, more follows, and people just resisted that concept that OCT would replace fluorescein angiography. But we were right, and it has, and it's a remarkable discovery thanks to you and the team in Boston, and uh, the rest is history. You know, OCT now is our number one go-to imaging modality. Let's talk a little bit about macular neovascularization, about present, short-term future, and long-term future. Where are we today with antibody treatment of macular neovascularization? Well, I think the short and sweet response is we've got this baby licked. You know, we can treat exudative macular diseases with anti-VEGF therapy. Now, we can argue the best strategy, treat and observe, treat and extend, longer acting agents, longer acting uh, devices, uh, viral gene ther therapy, you know, all this is gonna be a modification of what we already know. We've got this problem licked. And it kind of reminds me back when we first used OCT and within 24 hours, we saw that the exudative component disappeared. It was remarkable. And OCT could be used to follow those patients. But we also learned from those early OCT studies and the outcome of Marina and Anchor with Lucentis that it wasn't exudation fibrosis hemorrhage that caused vision loss. It was macular atrophy. You know, and we published that paper after Marina and Anchor, Why Patients Lost Lost Vision. But people really didn't grasp the concept that atrophy caused vision loss. And we got into the argument, do you call it atrophy? Do you call it um, uh, incomplete outer photoreceptor loss? People got into the terminology. Now we've kind of resolved the terminology. It's complete RPE and outer retinal atrophy or incomplete RPE and outer retinal atrophy. But we now know that we can provide the best anti-VEGF therapy possible, but patients are still going to lose vision. I so wait, but wait, before we get to the atrophy question, because you're, you're, you're the king there for sure, but let's talk more about the exudative part. First okay. of all, I'd push back a little bit, right? Do we really have this like, what about VEGFC, VEGFD, angiopoietin, you know, the calocrine system? Are there, are there other factors here that you think are going to add value or is it really just VEGFA driven? Yeah, I think the vast majority of the benefit is from anti-VEGF. These other components may tickle the outcome and improve things a little bit, but the real goal is to treat as early as possible. I think there's general consensus about that. And yep. if you take that to the next level, 
the real goal was to treat so you don't get the exudative macular disease, right? And then so, and you push that envelope, with, with, especially with your identification with your Schweppes source OCT imaging, beautiful images of those type one membranes that are not leaking. So when you, when you say treat as early as possible, tell us when that is, now that we can see these lesions, thanks to your double layer sign that we all look for. Right, you know, when I started, wet AMD was scary. When someone came in with exudative macular disease, it was the kiss of death. All we had was you know, thermal laser, then along came photodynamic therapy, which wasn't that much of an improvement. And now, if we have persistent exudation, we get upset, right? We got to treat a lot. Compared to 25 years ago, that's a, that's a remarkable advancement. Yeah. So now, thanks to swept source OCT angiographic imaging, we can see the type 1 lesions that are just sitting there under the retinal pigment epithelium without exudation. They're not rare. In fact, I'll go on the record as saying all type 1, type 2 lesions start as subclinical non-exudative lesions. Then type 3 lesions, you actually can see them too evolving in the retina. So do we treat lesions that don't cause vision loss? Do we treat lesions that aren't actively leaking? Currently in my practice, I don't. Patients have to have some kind of symptomatic complaint for me to start sticking a needle in their eye. But we certainly follow those patients a lot more closely. And I think the next revolution in management is going to be home OCT monitoring so we can follow those patients closely and get them in as soon as possible. So you, so you just said something really important. They have to be symptomatic. So when you're following these type 1 membranes that have no exudation and they start to develop a little bit of subretinal fluid, a little bit of intraretinal fluid, what do you mean they have to be symptomatic? Is that enough to have fluid, even if it's not right in the fovea and the patient doesn't notice it and there's still good vision? Well, my management has evolved over the years. I just find it very hard to convince someone who's never had a needle stuck in their eye to undergo intravitreal injections, and they don't think they've got a problem. Yeah. The same thing is treating intermediate AMD or even geographic atrophy. A lot yeah. of these patients have good vision. They think they're doing great. The patients that are willing to jump on the injection bandwagon, the ones that have a lost vision in their fellow eyes already. Yeah. Yeah. They understand the disease process. But those patients that haven't lost lost vision yet, I find it very difficult to convince them it's needle time. And then if something happens, they yeah. blame you because they were doing fine and you decided to stick a needle in their eye. Great points. Good points. What about reducing treatment burden, Phil? Lots of strategies out there, the port delivery system, gene therapy, uh, the Kodiak uh, biopolymer. What do you yeah. think about all those? I'm very optimistic that the various approaches coming down, down, down the road. We were hopeful that BOView would be game game changer, at least in my clinical practice, it's not. After a few cases of severe inflammation, I've stopped using it. We're hopeful that farisimab will take us that next step. Um, I'm not gonna be a big user of the port delivery system right now because I'm not convinced those patients that really need it, the ones with the fibrovascular pigment epithelial detachment with large serous components, the ones we have to treat aggressively, I'm not convinced the port delivery system will necessarily help those patients. And 
complication rates in my practice from intravitreal ejection are basically zero. So complications really are never events. So I'm going to want to see that product in the clinics for a while before I even consider using it. Gene therapy, interesting, enticing. I'm a little bit concerned about introducing a viral vector into the back of the eye and forcing cells to become little protein factories to produce therapeutics that we can deliver through an intravitreal injection with very low complication rate. Um, so I'm, again, I'm gonna wait and see what the long-term safety issues are uh, with viral therapy. And I'm excited about Kodiak and some other agents that should act even longer but again, I'm going to be using it on patients that need frequent injection. I'm certainly not going to use them as first-line therapy. We have great drugs. I mean, currently I use Avastin and Ilea. You know, Avastin is a gate, gateway drug, terrific. You get an idea of how patients respond. If, you, they don't, if I don't see a response that I like, I elevate them to Ilea. Eventually, most patients end up on Ilea, and I'm going to do the same thing. I did it with BioView. I took those patients that needed frequent retreatment and I introduced them to BioView. I then pulled it back and I'll do the same thing with Farisimab and Kodiak and any other longer acting agent that comes along. The test will be those patients that need frequent injection. How does this new drug treatment strategy compare to the gold standard, which I consider right now, ILEA? Do you think that chronic suppression of BEGF causes geographic atrophy and macular. This, this raises, atrophy. let's see if I can remember them. I've, I talk about the four myths of anti-VEGF therapy, okay? One is that anti-VEGF therapy causes geographic atrophy. No, age-related macular degeneration causes geographic atrophy. You know, if they don't form geographic atrophy and you don't treat them, they got big fibrotic scars. So you suppress exudation and neovascularization. The disease we're gonna, is going to progress to atrophy. And I think Vasada's analysis of the Harvard data is very convincing that atrophy, if you would expect atrophy to be formed by anti-VEGF therapy, you would think two milligram Lucentis dose monthly would have the highest rate of atrophy, and that just wasn't observed. So one of the myths is anti-VEGF causes geographic atrophy. Not true. Anti-VEGF causes glaucoma. We have a patient that a paper that just came out in the American Journal of Ophthalmology, accepted, not out yet, accepted, showing that if you don't have glaucoma, really anti-VEGF therapy over years doesn't cause thinning of the nerve fiber layer. So anti-VEGF therapy, repeated injection doesn't cause glaucoma-like changes. The other myth is that the presence of subretinal fluid is beneficial. How many times have you heard that? Oh, maybe we should treat so there's a little sub, sub, subretinal fluid. Hey, people, that subretinal fluid is coming from the production of VEGF. Guess what tissue makes VEGF? Healthy tissue, right? It's the healthy tissue making VEGF that you're treating because if you don't treat and downregulate the VEGF, then you get a lot of neovascularization hemorrhage. So the presence, the persistence of a little fluid just means there's healthy tissue producing VEGF, okay? And that's why patients see well, because there's still healthy tissue. Myth number four, 
I'm quite the expert in this because I originally gave anti-VEGF therapy systemically, Avastin systemically to treat wet macular degeneration. This I is back in that well. Yeah. And thanks, thanks to you, I got the permission to do it. And we raised money from pay, great, grateful patients and we ran, ran the study. And the number one systemic adverse event that I saw in the 20 plus patients that we treated was systemic hypertension. Now there was a black box warning put on Avastin that it could cause increased risk of heart attack, stroke, thromboembolic events, but we didn't see any of that. So this myth has persisted. Yes, high dose, a thousand times higher dose given systemically can cause systemic adverse events. The number one in all the clinical trials is hypertension, okay? So after all these years giving anti-VEGF therapy to patients in clinical trial, we don't see the hypertension. We don't see the thromboembolic events. We don't see the heart attacks and strokes. So people always bring up this point of meetings. Aren't you concerned about the systemic risk of intravitreal anti-VEGF? And I asked, say to them, where's the data? People have been searching for this data for years, and now they've looked at national healthcare databases in different parts of the world, and they can't find the increased risk. So we need to dispel these myths of anti-VEGF therapy, that it causes geographic atrophy, that the subretinal fluid that persists is actually beneficial to the eye. It's not beneficial to the eye. You're just showing that there's healthy, viable tissue back there producing VEGF. That anti-VEGF therapy causes glaucoma. It doesn't cause glaucoma. And that anti-VEGF therapy carries with it systemic adverse events. They're myths. They're not true. There's no data to support them. Thank you.